Hi, this is Jeannie Drisco with an episode of The Art and Soul of Healing. Today, on the wings of Alliance for Natural Health, we're flying to Seattle, Washington to visit with Dr. Davis Lampson. He is a great friend of mine and a colleague in the integrative or naturopathic oncology world. Davis has a passion for education, and that includes patients as well as fellow colleagues. He is also a gifted naturopathic doctor that practices naturopathic oncology. I'd like you to welcome Dr. Davis Lampson. I'm going to welcome you, Davis, to the art and soul of healing. And I'm just so thrilled that you agreed to join me. I know how busy you've been. Not too busy to talk to you anytime. (laughs) It's a privilege. Well, thank you. Well, you know, I want to start off by talking about your background because it's really so interesting. You started off in your youth with a, a BS in chemistry, and then you moved up to a master's and an advanced degree in organic chemistry, and then you got a psychology degree uh, advanced degree. No, so I, didn't, I didn't get, I, I went on to PhD work in chemistry and then at uh, one point I got more interested in my students so I studied counseling psychology but just due to moving across country and a few other things I never finished that degree. It wasn't really necessary because when I arrived out here I found out that everybody including your local taxi cab driver had a degree in counseling psychology. <laughs> I didn't know that. Well, then in 1982, you joined the first class of Bastyr College of Naturopathic Medicine. So it looks like you were seeking your true heart and you found it. This has been a really interesting journey. Well, I've been in uh, medicine longer than I've been in chemistry, so I think this career is going to work out. I was in <laughs> chemistry for about 20 years. Oh, gosh. That's marvelous. How, how did you find out about naturopathic medicine? Well, uh, I was casting about still looking at that counseling psychology thing and uh, decided that I should learn something about bodies because at that point in time, the so-called mind-body effect was a new concept. We take it totally for granted now, of course, and laugh. But um, I couldn't find any way to get into that, so I decided to go to massage school. (laughs) Because they did teach physiology and other things. And in that school, I met a Boeing engineer who also was indulging his mental life crisis. And um, we struck up acquaintance together, and later when they decided to start another naturopathic um, medicine college in Seattle, the, the one that had been here had moved to Portland, and they decided to start another one, and he told me about it, that he was going to join in. So I went to a couple of lectures by one of the founders and decided, well, yeah, I would, I would give it a fling. Now, of course... At that time in my life, I was pretty experienced, so what I really wanted to do is to try it out. But if you go to medical school saying you'd like to go for a quarter to try it out, they're not going to let you in. <laughs> so I fibbed. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, by the, by, the, by the end of the first quarter, I was hooked. But it was the hardest quarter of my life in academic work, which mm-hmm. I had done a lot of. Because it consisted of a whole bunch of things that I had no connection to. It was like 
every day going to the closet with a pile of clean laundry and there wasn't a coat hanger in it. <laughs> I just had nothing to hang anything on. It had to all be learned from scratch. So as I say, the first year in medical school was, was just totally miserable. It's but very painful. Probably, <laughs> that's the story of everybody probably uh-huh. who decides to go that route. Uh-huh, it is. And, you know, I know a lot about Bastyr uh, College of Naturopathic Medicine, and it is rigorous. So uh, I appreciate that first year for you. Yeah, well, it was it was interesting. And then what happened to that Portland school? You know, I didn't know that there had been a school that moved. Oh, it, it's still there. It's, it's carried on very well. It's it's known as the National College of Natural Medicine now. Oh, okay. I do know. I just, I didn't realize they'd started in Seattle. That's right. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Well, you served as adjunct faculty in oncology at Bastyr and have a private practice in uh, the Seattle area, and you also practice at the Tahoma Clinic. Yeah, I I would say that I started a practice in Seattle, and uh, then uh, I was very acquainted with Alan Gaby, who is well-known in nutritional medicine, and he and I were good friends, and he was a good friend of Jonathan Wright, the medical director of Tahoma Clinic. So when Jonathan asked Alan, Uh, was there a naturopathic physician uh, that would fit in because he just had a group of of MDs and um, Alan mentioned my name and said, well, you, you, you know him. And Jonathan said, how do do I know him? He said, and and this is a quote from Alan Gaby. He said, he's the guy at all your seminars that asks you the biochemical questions you can't answer. <laughs> so anyway, I, I got in down there, closed down the Seattle practice, which is was was nothing more than basic nutritional medicine. Mm-hmm. And at the Tahoma Clinic, you see everything that nobody else was able to make able to make any headway in. Absolutely. So he he wanted to come up with a cadre of physicians, each of whom would have a specialty, but, but be a wonderful generalist. Gosh, what an ideal. We've, we've actually achieved it a couple of times, but it keeps slipping away. At any rate, he wanted me to do oncology, and I didn't want to. So I told him um, that didn't he have any other thing he wanted especially, in, and he said, no, that's what he wanted. So I decided that working for Jonathan Wright might be worth getting into oncology. <laughs> yeah, he he's a good friend of mine as well. I just so respect him and Alan and Gaby as well. Well, so one thing led to another, and after about five years there, they asked me to instruct oncology at, at uh, Bastyr, and I was there for 17 years. Wow. That's quite a track record. So are you currently seeing a variety of patients or are you seeing mostly oncology? Oh, yeah. Oncology? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, well, in this, in this COVID time and being of a reasonable late age, I decided that I was very happy to do telephone appointments with anybody, but I did not want to see person to person for a while till things calmed down. And, uh, so I'm not getting very many new patients except cancer patients, which means that I'm dealing with all of my uh, old chronic patients that uh, 
are tough cases, but that that reduction in um, patient pressure has led me able to actually do some headway uh, on some of these chronic things. So I'm very pleased that I've got a small paper coming out on success with backing up congestive obstructive pulmonary disease and another one backing up diabetic retinopathy and another one um, where I was able to completely reverse terminal liver fibrosis in a teenage alcoholic. Wow. Uh, these are all one of a kind, of course. I don't necessarily expect what I did would work every time, but I thought it deserved telling everybody about. There is the problem these days that for a naturopathic physician to get anything published is just really impossible just about. I think that goes for a lot of us trying to pu- publish in integrative medicine generally, not just naturopathy. Yeah. Well, there is the Townsend letter, which has a circulation of a few thousand, but nobody will ever see it. It's not PubMed listed. Mm-hmm. Although we all really have it thought the Townsend letter was important for our communication. Well, I figure if somebody sees it and mentions it to somebody else, maybe the word will get around on a few of these things. Yeah. So I believe you founded the Oncology Association of Naturopathic Physicians or one of the co-founders. Is that correct? Oh, not exactly. Um, they sort of forgot about me when they founded it. And and then they sort of went, whoops, and gave me the President's Award when it was founded. <laughs> oh, I see. I, I, I just assumed that you would have been there. Well, I, I was when they called the first meeting, but I wasn't among the actual founders. But then in the Constitution or whatever you call it, they said they were devoted to education. And so after about three years, I said, you're not fulfilling this. You need a national conference. And since you haven't been able to get it together, I'm going to hold it all by myself. Well, I did. And and uh, I did it just for about 40 leaders. And they found it so exciting that the next year we had a national conference. Yeah. <laughs> I, I attended one of those conferences and I found it really exhilarating. I enjoyed it very much. Well, they are exhilarating. I wish they were on a higher level than they are. I, I I thoroughly believe there needs to be some sort of task force for the organization um, looking constantly at at the idea of which way is forward. I mean, allopathic oncology knows the way it's headed. Uh I don't think, I don't think complementary oncology knows where it's headed. It sort of plods along until it gets. Well, you sent me the paper from the new England journal of medicine from September 3rd, Progress in Cancer Research, Prevention, and Care. Yeah, so you were uh, you were trying to challenge your naturopathic oncology community to rise to that cause. Yeah, I, 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 I did. did. It, it probably fell on the floor with a resounding thud or maybe like a feather. I don't know. Uh, we'll see if anything comes of it or not. Well, I think we do need to map out our future. Um uh, but the, in that paper, you noted some of the caveats. Do you can you tell us a few of those caveats that you noted in allopathic oh, oncology? Uh, I, I honestly can't remember them all, but it was it was interesting because it was sort of a paper 
that I would describe as with their thumb in their armpit, you know, sort of thing, <laughs> are not pretty hot. And then they'd say, except for so-and-so. And then they'd go along another paragraph and they'd say, except for so-and-so. <laughs> and they kept doing that all the way through the paper. So there, there were five really good examples, I think, of complete shortcomings. And of course, everybody wants to fill in shortcomings, but um, I hardly think it necessarily deserved the title of Aren't We Grand? Yeah. <laughs> because of what we've accomplished, it's like, this is an uphill walk, people get to work. Yeah, it is. So where do you see naturopathic oncology or, or the organization OnCap in the future? Well, uh, you know, they hold a national conference and I don't think we try enough to get speakers uh, to present new points of view about how to accomplish things for patients. Uh, that's really what I did the appeal on based on citing that article and saying they know where they're going. I don't think we do. See, my, I guess my underlying point is understood by a lot of people without my having to say it, but naturopathic oncology is dependent on research of other people. We don't have the funds to do any. So we really depend on what other people discover and we try to capitalize on that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we can do better than just waiting around until somebody puts something in their lap, but I think it's going to take thought and planning and maybe some action and maybe some digging around for mm -hmm. some money. You know, it's really difficult to get funding. I mean, I, I think it was easier maybe for me anyway, for 10, about 10 years ago. And then I think there's been such a backlash against integrative naturopathic functional medicine, whatever you want to call it, that the funding stream is has really dried up unless you're doing something that they consider safe like acupuncture or massage you know some or mind body yeah that's sort of amazing that it's it's okay to research palliative things and maybe they'll give you a dime for it but if you get serious they don't want to hear from you absolutely i mean that's what i've been seeing recently i i have a colleague we're at ku medical center and we're currently uh, doing a research project in bladder cancer with intravenous vitamin C, but to get funding was just, oh my gosh, it was, and it was just a pittance, not much at all. Well, you might find it somewhat humorous that I do have a very small opinion piece coming out in the Townsend letter, probably not in the next issue, but they've accepted it, titled, what has U.S. medicine got against vitamin C? <laughs> I'll have to watch for that. I'll, I'll send it to you. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's, it's a very short thing. You'll see. Yeah. Just pointed out that, you know, they're always going, is this safe? Like, they're somehow not willing to give 10 grams of vitamin C in 24 hours to people dying of COVID-19. And... Which isn't enough. We, we give, well, no, they got them out of the emergency room in, in seven days that way, 24 hours a day. But uh, we give 100 grams to somebody in four hours. How many pharmaceuticals can you give 100 grams uh -huh. of that won't kill somebody? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Well, I have always enjoyed getting emails from you because you were constantly reading scientific literature and making connections for the use for naturopathic integrative oncology. That's very kind of you. I'm just so ignorant. I have to work hard. <laughs> I've said the same thing about myself. I, I, I'm, I have to work extremely hard to keep up. Well, you sent me something recently, which I thought was very interesting. It was the high interstitial fluid pressure in a, an optic. So could, could you tell our listeners a little bit about that find? Okay, well, I turned it up searching for something else like you do sometimes. So it's a 2000 paper, 2004 paper published in Nature, um, volume four, page 806. And what they showed was that there is a high interstitial pressure in tumors, which is one of the reasons that chemotherapy doesn't get in there very well. So they said, well, if we can lower that, uh, maybe it'll help. So they did lower it in in vivo studies, and it was much more successful. Well, they have a table in the paper of things that lower it, and almost all the table is um, anti-VEGF agents, except for one, which is niacinamide. And they showed a substantial amount of niacinamide would lower the interstitial pressure. Well, of course, I proceeded to open up PubMed and search niacinamide and VEGF, and yes, it lowers VEGF. (laughs) So that's what it is. The anti-angiogenesis agents actually lower the pressure. Now, there's another paper that is not by the same authors, but it's on somewhat same subject in 2008, in Future Oncology, Volume 4, Number 6, page 793, that follows up on that idea of the interstitial pressure. Um, but I looked at it and I thought, well, does that mean that we could get more vitamin C into cancer cells if you can get more chemotherapy into cancer cells that you could make intravenous vitamin C more effective? So that's a theoretical idea at the moment. Uh, and so I was casting around at first just about amide that uh, you can probably give a substantial amount of it by IV so it could accompany the IV or you can give a lot of amide orally. Um, if you give too much, the person just gets nausea and everybody knows when they've got that. So um, uh, that's something I think that we we really do need to look at. But then backing up even further, if you're lowering the interstitial pressure so things that can get in there by IV, that means anything else dissolved in the blood. So all the oral supplements are going to get there better also, mm. if this is true. I think that's fascinating. Uh, and and uh, mm-hmm. what struck me was that since for certain cancers, they do include VEGF agents, but I don't think that's the reason they include them, or otherwise they'd include VEGF agents with everything, which probably they ought to be doing. Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. simply because it's going to slow down angiogenesis, but because it's going to make the cancer therapy more effective. It's such a fascinating topic, I think. So you heard the whole spiel. That's as far as I know how to go at this point. If, if somebody jumps up having shed their cancer, you'll be the second person to know. <laughs> so are you working on any research projects now? Anything that's 
capturing your excitement? Well, the the thing about uh, the IVC, and I wrote you about this also, that you had published with other folks there at KU about an in vivo study in which you included glutathione with the IVC and the in vivo study shows that you reduce the effectiveness of the vitamin C against a cancer situation by about 40%. Mm-hmm. Now, we know that glutathione uh, neutralizes hydrogen peroxide very efficiently, and that's supposedly most of the mechanism for the IVC. So I had naturally assumed that things like N-acetylcysteine and the other famous sulfhydryl agent, lipoic acid, would do the same mm-hmm. thing. And it turns out that uh, that NAC is thought to do that. But um, I ran into a doc who thought that lipoic acid didn't do that. And so I started looking up. And I ran into that research paper that I sent you from 2001. And we're getting further back in time, aren't we? Isn't it interesting what's already been done? that uh, one of your mentors, Hugh Reardon, had published a paper in 2001 showing that if lipoic acid was included with vitamin C IV, the results were better in vivo. And I never did hear an answer from you about what you thought of that. Yeah, well, uh, we had wanted to do a similar set of experiments with alpha-lipoic acid with intravenous vitamin C, and we never... Uh, were able to get funding for that. So that was one of my regrets. I think it's probably too late to do that now. But that's been one of my regrets. But my concern is that sulfhydryl group in the lipoic acid, uh, I think lipoic acid has its place. But mixing the two, the lipoic acid with the intravenous vitamin C, I've always been concerned about reduction in uh, hydrogen peroxide production, which we both know is the, the the vitamin C is a prodrug, so it's in the body, and its effect is the drug hydrogen peroxide, which forms. So I've always been very concerned about adding lipoic acid with intravenous vitamin C. I see. Okay, so that's why you never called me down from my generalization. <laughs> well, yeah, I didn't. I, 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 and you certainly have a much more robust chemistry background than I do. But those sulfhydryl groups, you do have to be concerned about its effect on the hydrogen peroxide formation. Well, I w- always was until I hit that paper by Hugh Reardon and, and his group. Was that was that done before or after you were working with him? That was done, uh, let's see, 2001. I was there in the 90s. I trained under Hugh Reardon in the 90s. Uh, I always am a little concerned about some of the research that was done at the center. Um, Mm -hmm. And that one, I think, needs to be replicated. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I I just don't see that one paper being our you know, gold standard, so to speak. So I'm concerned about using lipoic acid in cancer patients. You come up with somebody to run that study, and I will try to get the money to do it. Okay. I think, well, Kay Chin is still at KU, and we had it written up 
it needs to be done. Tell her to tell me how much. Tell me. Tell her to tell me how much money. Okay, I will. I'll go begging. I'll go begging. I know two people that I'll go begging to and say you only have to buy half of it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> uh, I'll do that. Well, we were shocked at the at the uh, reduction in effectiveness of IVC with glutathione. And I still well, have it's perfectly reasonable. It is, but I still have difficulty trying to convince uh, my colleagues that it's not a good idea. Really? So, yes, absolutely. I think in a, in a, even in infection, like mononucleosis, for example, if you're going to treat a, a young person that has a pretty advanced. Um, case of mononucleosis with the splenomegaly and the, and the hepatomegaly and they're fatigued and they're told to go home from college for a month. Um, you know, we've treated those people with uh, three days of intravenous vitamin C and by the third day, they're ready to go back to school. But it's magic. It's it magic. magic. It really is. And again, it's that hydrogen peroxide formation that's killing the viral load or stemming down the viral load. And, and so I, I've been concerned even in infection with use, using glutathione. Now, in that case, I think that glutathione could have a place. It's just you wouldn't want to mix it in the bag at the same time you're administering it, perhaps later. Yeah. But, uh, but not at the same time. Yeah, I agree yeah, well, we see too, we we see too eye to eye to to manufacture much. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> well, we do have to just keep educating our colleagues, and and that's something that I'm very committed with doing. So I'll take up your challenge, and I'll talk to Kay Chen about doing this study. It's it wasn't a very uh, difficult study to perform. Yeah, well, I I know the two people that I will hit up. And and what I would uh, if um, if it looks like an amount of money that I can wangle out of these people, what I would like from you is some sort of really magnificent letter describing what a fantastic thing this is to do. Mm-hmm. Well, that's easy. Yeah, and you know, it's for a benefit for patients too. It's not just well, yeah. I mean, that's the whole point. That's the whole point of everything. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I want to switch gears. I have a question for you. You know, the homeopathy is in the process of being banned by the FDA. How is the naturopathic? Yes, it is. They've really gone aggressively against it. I wondered if any of your net, obviously you haven't heard about it. So your naturopathic colleagues, I wonder what they're, how they're going to respond to this. I, have to admit that being somewhat of a scientific materialist, uh, homeopathy has never quite spoken to me. I will, I will bore you just a moment with a story from my first year in medical school when um, I was going to class at eight o'clock one morning and my bicycle hit a curb dead on that just tossed me into the street and bent the bicycle all to heck. And I literally picked up the bicycle and walked the last walk to school and went into class. And about halfway through class at 8.30, I began to feel 
really rocky, like I was going into shock. And so I went up to the prophet at 8.50 at the break and explained to him, he assigned three burly guys to escort me to the emergency room, which was not in the same place. And so um, they said, well, let's give him some arnica. And the only guy in class who happened to have homeopathic arnica wasn't there that morning. So they decided to go by his house. Now, uh, I should back up and say, when they wanted three people to take me to the emergency room, the reason why is if I passed out, they wanted three burly guys who could lift me and so on. The entire class volunteered to take me because being medical students, they all wanted to see the emergency room. <laughs> so we went by this guy's house and... Um, he came to the door and thought that we were coming to get him because he hadn't come to class. And they said, no, we just want to give Lamson some arnica. And before we go to the ER, he says, the ER, wait, let me get my clothes on. Because <laughs> he wanted to go through. So they fed me the arnica. And within five minutes, the entire feeling of being beat up with a thousand men with little sticks dropped away. But they took me on to the ER anyway, and I sat on a gurney in the hall until they told me to go home. Okay. And uh, that was all that was done. So uh, I had given them grief in medical school about homeopathy and the extreme dilution and so on like that. And so they said, well, now do you believe in homeopathy? I said, not anymore than I did before, but I believe in homeopathy. <laughs> I've used it. Now, Low potency homeopathy, I think, in some circumstances, is absolutely great. I stock in my office um, Arnica 3X, which is dilute but not terribly dilute. I just have trouble with these high potencies where arithmetically there's nothing there. Mm -hmm. So I'm not the guy to ask anything about homeopathy to. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, I'm sorry if that that chemical education which has left me as a materialist. I want to see I want to see something there. Well, I think there's plenty of other people uh, at the FDA that would agree with that, and uh, and I think it's going to go away. I really do, which I I think is unfortunate. I'm a believer in the low potency. I just don't practice it as a general thing. It struck me in medical school as so complicated. You had to really commit to that modality and learn more than I wanted to know about it. Mm -hmm. Is there any other parting advice you can give me for uh, cancer care approaching patients? Oh boy, I'm learning every day. I learned a long time ago that the first thing I ask people, as strange as it sounds, is what are you looking for? And I learned to do that after the first time I described a completely ornate system that was supposed to really help somebody. And they looked at me funny and said, we thought you were going to give us a diet. <laughs> oh, gosh. A dietitian. <laughs> so, so the first thing I want to find out with somebody is, is what are they really looking for? Um, uh -huh. For instance, I had a patient on Thursday. He's going to begin chemo and radiation for um, anal cancer. And what he wanted that he told the receptionist was protection against the side effects of chemo and radiation. So I said, great, that's my understanding. Let's start there. 
And when we get to the end of that, I'll show you a couple of other things. Now, he's 80 years old, and um, his chance of a cure is ranked at 40%. So I said, well, let's, let's look at a couple of other things there. It turns out, number one, these agents uh, that both reduce the uh, detriments of the therapy, but also sensitize cancer cells to your chemotherapy and radiation, they're doing more for you than you knew. It's not just a matter of protection. But then let me tell you about a couple of things you may not know about. I told him about hyperthermia because 200 miles away in Canada, we have one of the experts in regional hyperthermia. And I was thinking, you know, they've told you that you have a 40% chance with this. Why not see if you can up it to 80% by adding another modality? Because it is a very localized situation in his case. So um, the moral to this is, which I guess is what you asked me in the first place, is I take them where they are and give them what they want, and that makes them more able to listen to possibly more than they knew about. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So I don't think that's any particular wisdom. I suppose anybody with a brain would be doing that. <laughs> You'd hope. <laughs> Just meeting patients where they are. That's, that's wonderful. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today and jumping through the hoops that you did to <laughs> get connected. Well, you're a dear. I, I hope to talk to you with pictures one of these days. I'll have to learn how to make it work. So thank you so much for asking me. Yeah. Well, I'm going to uh, answer your call to get a protocol gathered up and a possible uh funding amount for our alpha-lipoic intravenous vitamin C study. Seriously, I, I will go beg for you. Okay, well, thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Lampson. And I'll be watching out for those papers that you've promised to get published now that you're in lockdown with COVID. Also, slowly cranking out some of those case histories will be exciting. Definitely a pleasure speaking with Dr. Davis Lampson. And thank you to Alliance for Natural Health USA for making these types of practices available in the United States and standing in the gap for our health freedoms. Go to AllianceForNaturalHealthUSA.org and become a member today.